Hello, everybody. Good to be back. Good to see you. Before I get started with the lesson this morning, I want to ask Celeste to come on up. There you are. I was looking for you. And uh, give us a quick update on all things Oxford. Okay. <laughs> I think there's a big party going on in Oxford while I'm away for the Queen's Jubilee. I think they've had quite a time. Uh, my name is Celeste Small, and I am a missionary with Avant Ministries. I currently live in the UK in Oxford. And my role is that I'm assistant to the vice president who is over Europe and the Americas. So I'm here visiting my parents for a few days, and on Tuesday, I'll be flying to Panama to attend the conference for all our Latin American missionaries. Um, My vice president, Ken, has asked that I attend the conference to get to know those missionaries, their ministries, and for them to get to know me and my role as his assistant. So I'm really looking forward to that. On the 14th, I will arrive back in uh, the UK, and I'll be there just till the 25th of June, and I'll fly to Germany because we have a European conference for all our European missionaries, and I need your prayers for that. I am the one in charge of that conference. (laughs) It's a week long. There are 150 people coming. We have Bible study, we have fellowship, prayer time, um, time for encouraging the missionaries and have just a time of renewal for them and further training. Uh, Honestly, some of the details are not falling into place yet, so if you could pray about that, I'd appreciate it. So thank you so much for praying for me, for loving on my parents and just supporting us. Thank you. Before you leave, Celeste, let's let's pray for you right now. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that your blessing would be on this conference for safe travel, for everyone going, for Celeste as she makes her way there on Tuesday, that the purposes that you have for this conference would be accomplished, and also, if it dovetails, that the purposes that we have for the conference would also be accomplished. Pray especially for the missionaries going, that you would refresh them. It's so often the fact that uh, those of us in serving the Lord are all output with not a lot of input. We pray that this would be a time where their batteries could get recharged, where they could be encouraged and refreshed, and that Celeste as well would be encouraged in her significant strategic role uh, serving as she does at Oxford. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks. Traveling internationally is wonderful until you want to eat. And then you're like flipping a coin. You never know. I remember once when I went to China, you have to have a different stomach when you're in China. And you have to be very careful because the Chinese are used to what they eat and we are not used to eating what the Chinese eat. I remember walking down the street one time and seeing this tub full of eels live eels and they were selling to eat so you know be grateful be grateful well i say that to say sometimes when i'm in a foreign country and i see a mcdonald's i'm so grateful because you know what you're going to get you know Uh, but even here in the states when we take our kids or our grandkids to the golden arches i don't know if you've noticed it but the kids and grandkids know what is at the golden arches yeah there's the playground But there's also this little box with a smile on it called the Happy Meal. You know, it's got, uh, you know, what, chicken nuggets. It's got a drink. It's got some French fries. It's got that toy in it. But it's the Happy Meal. This is brilliant marketing. 
isn't it? And it has worked since 1979. That's how long the Happy Meal has been in our faces. Just think about whenever you take a kid or a grandkid up there and you dare not buy them the Happy Meal, they have a conniption. And everyone in the restaurant turns and looks at this penny-pinching parent that won't buy happiness for their child. (laughs) The reality is the problem with uh, Happy Meal is that the happy wears off. The toy breaks. The, uh, The meal is eaten. The kid gets hungry again. How many times do we have to feed these kids? And we have to keep uh, going back for more happiness. There's no, there's no permanent happiness. No child ever says, you know what, I've had the happy meal. I am now content with eternal joy. <laughs> happy meals <laughs> only bring happiness to the bottom line of McDonald's. If you think about it, though, when we get older, as we grow up, we don't grow out of the Happy Meal. We just call it something else, and it costs a lot more. For eight hours of work at minimum wage, you can take a friend or your spouse to a restaurant. Think about that. Minimum wage is like, what, $7 something now? Eight hours times that's 56 bucks. That's like, that's a nice meal someplace for two people for eight hours work. For a month's salary, you can take a pretty nice vacation. For a half-year's salary, you could buy a pretty nice car. Well, actually, probably a pretty cheap car and a little bit of gasoline. (laughs) But as with the Happy Meal, once you've played with your toy, eventually you hunger for more. It just doesn't last. Not too long ago, I read about the Hayden Planetarium up in New York City, that started a program, actually it was just sort of an invitation of all the people who were interested in applying to be part of a crew that would journey to another planet. So, I mean, this was total, not totally hypothetical, it was just to gauge interest. 18,000 people applied. 18,000 people. And they gave this stack of applications to psychiatrists to try to figure out, you know, these people, to see if there was any thread of of similarity between the type of person that would want to go visit another planet. And they did find an amazing consistency that the people who applied, the vast majority, did so because they were discouraged with their lives, and they hoped that they could find a new life somewhere else. It's the pilgrims on the Mayflower, but we're just going to a different planet. Let's look together at Psalm 63. Psalm 63 and 2 Samuel 15. So have both of those open. Psalm 63, 2 Samuel 15. Psalm 63, 2 Samuel 15. You've probably noticed as you've, re- as you've read the Psalms throughout your life that there are what are called superscriptions above the Psalms, on many of the Psalms, that give sort of a historical background to the Psalm. And it's a bit challenging if you don't know that when you read, for example, Psalm 63, like my New American Standard says, Psalm 63, and then right underneath it, it says, The thirsting soul satisfied in God. And then right underneath that, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And then verse 1. So what's the superscription? I wish the editors would keep out of this 
because they added this, the thirsting soul satisfied in God, and the right under that is the, a Psalm of David. The challenge is, if we don't know what the true superscription is, we can often misunderstand a 20th century or 21st century editor's opinion of this chapter as opposed to the superscription, which is actually part of the biblical text. A a Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah, is in the Hebrew Bible. That is actually verse zero, you might say. It's actually part of the psalm. It's actually scripture. And the, the line above it, the, thir- the thirsting soul satisfied in God, is just some editor's summary. Uh, so knowing that is helpful. But these superscriptions, superscription, super means above, and scription means writing, so a writing that's above the, the text. The superscription gives often historical background, sometimes a musical direction. But this one very clearly is part of the, t- the text, and it says a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Uh, the books of First and Second Samuel speak of David being in this wilderness. And if you've ever been to Israel, you're familiar with this wilderness. It is a barren place. I mean, it's like you don't stop there. You drive through it, usually to get from Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea or vice versa. But you don't stop there. There's nothing there to do except to just drive through it. It's about 18 miles of very beautiful but very desolate country. And we're told a couple of times in First and Second Samuel that David is in the Judean wilderness. The first is when he's running from King Saul. The second is when he is running, when David is running from his son Absalom. So which occasion is it? Well, Psalm 63 uh, tells us toward the end of it, or at least gives a pretty clear implication, that it's probably when David was running from Absalom and not when David was running from Saul. So we'll look at that when we get to it. But with that in mind, Keep your place in Psalm 63 and turn back to 2 Samuel 15, where you have opened, and look down at verse 23. This is the background that, uh, of David running from his son Absalom. And he, David would have written Psalm 63, most likely, from this event. 2 Samuel 15, verse 23. While all the country was weeping with a loud voice... All the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. So I don't know if you're familiar with Jerusalem or the geography of Jerusalem, but in your mind, if you could just picture you know, Jer- Jerusalem sort of as this, uh, or the, the Temple Mount as this lectern that's kind of high, and then to use from your perspective, you know, this is, this is to the east. If you go east, you go down into the Kidron Valley, and then you go up again on the Mount of Olives, and then you slope down into the Judean wilderness all the way down to the Jordan River. So you've got the Temple Mount, you've got the Kidron Valley, you've got the Mount of Olives, and then it slopes down through the wilderness all the way to the Jordan River. So we're told here that David is passing over, and the passing over is the the brook Kidron, Kidron, or the Kidron Valley. So David's leaving Jerusalem, passing over the Kidron Valley, going up the Mount of Olives, about to head through the Judean wilderness, down toward the Jordan River. Look at verse 30. We see this continuing. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, 
and wept as he went, and his head was covered, and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. Now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolish. So here we've got David going up the Mount of Olives, praying. All right, stick with me here. Look at chapter 16, verse 14. So now David has traveled through the wilderness, and he is now down at his destination. Verse 14 says, The king and all the people who were with him arrived, weary, and he refreshed himself there. So where did he arrive? Where is there that he refreshed himself? One more stop. Look at chapter 17, verse 22. 17:22. Then David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed the Jordan. And by dawn, not even one remained who had not crossed the Jordan. So we know that when David stopped and refreshed himself, it was on the west side of the Jordan. He hadn't crossed the Jordan River yet. So he was in the area of Jericho, is in that large area that sometimes uh, uh, the large plain that's there right by Jericho, right at the edge of the Judean wilderness. And so it's very possible that while he was there, while he was refreshing himself, that he wrote Psalm 63. Makes the most sense that this would be where he would do it. So look back, Psalm 63. One thing um, that's kind of interesting about the geography that we just read is that a thousand years after David, another king rejected, crossed the Kidron, went to the Mount of Olives, and prayed there, just like David. Who was this? Our Lord Jesus, indeed, the rejected king, crossed the Kidron Valley, entered the Garden of Gethsemane, which is right at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and prayed. Now, there's an interesting contrast between David and Jesus, which we'll look at here in just a few minutes, but just kind of keep that in context in your mind. So Psalm 63, David refreshes himself likely by writing this as well as Psalm 3, which we won't look at, but the superscription tells us that he wrote Psalm 3 as well while he was running from Absalom. Uh, David flees, and he goes through this wilderness, refreshes himself. So now, let's look at Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If you've ever been, again, to the wilderness of Judea, you know this is a dry and weary land that has no water. Even in the springtime, when the little bit of rain falls on it and little bitty wisps of grass are there, there's still not water to be found. It is barren. This is a place you would not want to go. This is the place that you do go if you want to not be with people. And you see this throughout the, uh, the Old Testament. You see this throughout the New Testament. When people are trying to escape or run away, they often will go to the Judean wilderness. We see this in the life of uh, who? Jeremiah, we see it in the life of John the Baptist, we see it in Jesus' life. This is the wilderness that Jesus was tempted in for 40 days. This is the wilderness John the Baptist went down and preached in. But this is the wilderness also that David flees, and he goes through this wilderness and stops, and he prays to God. And notice in verse 1 he says, he speaks to God not as this distant deity, but as an intimate deity. 
He knows him well. He is already intimately acquainted with him. The text says, I seek you earnestly. If you have the new King James Version in your lap, it says early. I seek you early. And that's probably a better translation because the original Hebrew says, I seek you at the dawn. It's, um, it, it's not so much a time of day as it is a priority. I seek you first. You are the first one, first thing I seek, the first person I seek. You know, a lot of times in our lives, the things that we seek are often the things that pass away. We seek the happy meal. When we're struggling, we go for the happy meal. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you as well. David says he's praying in a place that is dry and weary, which implies thirst. There's no place for no water. It implies thirst. Have you ever been thirsty? I mean, we've all been thirsty, but I mean like really, really thirsty. Like you weren't smart enough to bring water along. Okay, that kind of thirsty. Well, I have. It is not pleasant. It is borderline suffering. Uh, I was training for a marathon years ago, and I had done just a bunch of short runs prior to my first long run. When you're training for marathons, you've got to do both. And so this was my first long run, and I was at about mile 19, and I had not brought any water along with me. Prior to this, is no big deal. You know, six miles, seven miles, you could do that without drinking water. You shouldn't, but I did. Well, I also did 19 miles without drinking water, and I wondered, why am I so lethargic? I mean, I was like ready to fall down. And I looked at my arms, and I had white crust all over my arms. Like salt, it just was coming out of my body. I was like totally dehydrated. So I thought, well, I guess I need some water. So I went over to the food lion that was there, and I staggered in there probably looking like something that Jonah's whale had belched up. Just white. I said, water, water. And uh, I didn't ask for a Coca-Cola. I didn't even ask for Gatorade. Only water would do it. There's something about water that only water can do, especially when you're thirsty. David uses the surroundings that he is in and says that he is in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And then he makes the statement, my soul thirsts for you interesting. He uses the bleak surroundings around him as a picture of his emotions. This bleak land that I'm in represents the bleak emotions that I feel. And I thirst not for water, but for God. I thirst for you, he says. My flesh yearns for you. In fact, the word yearns is literally the word faints. It's like you just ran 19 miles spiritually without any God in the picture. You are fainting spiritually. David says, I'm yearning, I'm fainting for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Well, here's the first principle right in the first verse that we can get from this text. Simply this, we each have a thirst only God can satisfy. We each have a thirst that only God can satisfy. There is a book called Sahara Unveiled. 
that tells the story of a couple of Algerians who were driving through the desert and their truck broke down. Um, the book says this, quote, They nearly died of thirst during the three weeks that they waited before being rescued. As their bodies dehydrated, they became willing to drink anything in hopes of quenching their terrible thirst. Dehydration, not starvation, kills wanderers in the desert. Thirst is the most terrible of all human sufferings. It goes on to talk about how these two men uh, tapped into the radiator and began drinking the rusty water of the radiator. Hopefully it wasn't like antifreeze in there, though we probably don't need antifreeze in the Sahara. <laughs> but still, the rusty water, I mean, they were essentially willing to drink poison because they were so thirsty. I read that and thought, you know what? There is, there is within our lives a willingness to drink poison when we get so thirsty. We get so thirsty, we'll drink poison. Or a, a, a metaphor that isn't quite so uh, drastic, we'll eat the Happy Meal. We'll, we'll try to quench our thirst any way we can, but the problem is the toy breaks, we get hungry again. There is within every one of us a thirst only God can satisfy. David recognizes this. We have a thirst only God can satisfy. We'll try to fix it other ways, maybe through money, through pleasure, through people, through possessions. There are a lot of alternatives to God in life. Not good ones, but there are alternatives. In the, the wilderness, Satan tempted Jesus in this very same wilderness. And remember, Jesus was in this wilderness, thirsty, hungry, and Satan came to him and tempted him in the wilderness to use his power for his benefit against the will of God. Jesus didn't do it, but Jesus is the only one who never has. We've all done it. We've all bought the Happy Meal. We've all drunk the poison out of the radiator. We've all done it. How can something physical quench a thirst that is ultimately spiritual? David says, I thirst for you. My, my flesh yearns or faints for you, God. Jesus told the woman at the well, anyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But anyone who drinks from the water that I give him will not only be content, but will be overflowing. There's not only a contentment, there's more than enough. It springs out into the lives of other people as well. But only what Jesus gives us provides us this. Do you remember the gasoline that we called regular? When's the last time you've ever heard regular gasoline? I'll tell you when it was. It was back in the 90s, early 90s. So it was about 1991, I think, is when I remember buying my last gallon of regular gasoline. And I remember it because I had a lawnmower that only ran on regular gasoline. Ran great with regular gasoline. Went to the pump. There's no more regular gasoline. I went inside, and, and the guy says, well, we're not selling that anymore. You know, it's, it's unleaded from here on. Like, well, okay, if that's all there is. So took unleaded gasoline home, put it in the mower, cranked that thing up. And, I mean, you would have thought the world was ending. That thing was sputtering and smoking and choking, and uh, it mowed the yard, but it wasn't happy about it. <laughs> I don't think that mower ever forgave me for putting unleaded gasoline in a regular engine. C.S. Lewis said it a little more eloquently in his book, Mere Christianity. He writes this, 
A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. Let me read that line again. That's why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. If I find in myself a desire in which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. You see, David knew in Psalm 63 what you and I need to learn as well, that God has put eternity in our hearts. The book of Ecclesiastes says that um, God, how does it put it? There is, uh, God has set eternity in the hearts of people. There is this, as some theologians say, God-shaped vacuum that we have, that nothing else fills that vacuum except God. It's like trying to put pieces of a puzzle together Kathy loves puzzles. I mean, loves puzzles. We, like, have this closet devoted to puzzles. And, you know, about every two weeks, she'll ask me to get out the big table, and I'll get out the big table, and she is in puzzle mode for the next, you know, 48 hours. And she'll get these, like, thousand-piece puzzles, and she loves it. And so occasionally she'll ask me to sometimes – I'm not a big puzzle guy. Uh, Anyway. But she is, and she loves it. And so I'll read to her while she's doing the puzzle or something, but occasionally I'll get over there and I'll help her. Help her. She puts in like 30 pieces for my one. She's like, she can just make it happen. And I'm like, well, this sort of looks like it fits. And then, have you ever noticed you really want it to fit? (laughs) You just push real hard. And you can make it squeeze in there. Sometimes it looks really convincing, but it's not supposed to go. There is a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts, and we will try to squeeze a lot of things in there. Nothing else fits. Nothing else fits but God. We have a thirst that only God can satisfy. David knew this. Well, we're only on verse 1. Let's look at verse 2. Thus I have seen in in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. I love these verses because it tells it like it is. Life gives us a variety of struggles. David is in a dry and weary land, and then all of a sudden, verse 2, it's like his focus changes. He says, I have seen you in the sanctuary. I've seen your glory, your power, your loving kindness. He is focusing on the presence of God. Uh, I I think I've told you before, but I'll tell you again. I was one time uh, going up to the mall 
to do some last-minute Christmas shopping because this is when we men Christmas shop, last minute. I mean, that's what the last minute's for, right? To get everything done. Thank goodness for the last minute or we would not get things accomplished. So I was on my way to the mall to get some Christmas thing, and it was cold and it was raining. I mean, one of those hard rains where you've got to go really slowly and the windshield wipers can't even keep up with the rain. And so everybody's crawling along, and we get to what I think is a red light, because everyone stopped, and I I think I can see a red light way in the distance, and we're, like, just stopped. And it was a hard season of my life at that time. This was December. It was about a year after I had started my own business, and holidays also always resurrect painful memories of family history. And so I was just sort of sitting there feeling sorry for myself and emotionally needy. And I can't explain it except to say that God showed up. I mean, the doors were locked. Somehow he found his way in the car. He just showed up. And what I mean by that is that I just had this overwhelming sense of his presence. And I don't know if you've ever felt that. If you are a Christian, you probably have. I'm not saying that some, you know, if you haven't felt it, you're not a Christian. I'm just saying we are. Sometimes we, we do have these moments where it's just like God is here. I mean, he's always here. But you get this overwhelming sense of his presence. And it's so real, you, didn't, you weren't pursuing it. You weren't chasing it. You weren't trying to fabricate it. You weren't singing Kumbaya to make it kind of happen. It just happened. It was like the angels appearing above the shepherds in Bethlehem. Those shepherds weren't expecting that. It just happened. Well, this is what happened. No lights, no voices, just this overwhelming sense of God's presence. And all of the anxiety that I felt, all of the frustration and anger at life that I felt, melted away like wax because of the presence of God. And it gave me sort of what you might call a foretaste of glory divine. It was just this, you know, like when we think, uh, boy, I've got all these questions about life. And when I get to heaven, I can't wait to ask Jesus about them. Because he really needs to explain what happened back in 1987. (laughs) You know, everything's good, but 1987, I'm waiting on figuring that out. Why did the Lord allow that? Sure, I trust him, but sure, explain yourself, Lord. Why? We've got all these expectations. When we get to glory, we'll finally get our questions answered. I think when we get to glory, we're going to see the glory of God. And all of our questions, all of our concerns, all of our tears, everything is just going to melt away like wax. We're just going to be in his presence. So, Celeste, come on back up here and say something. (laughs) Help me out. Just his presence. It's all we're going to need forever. Forever. This is what David is saying in verse 5 or verse 2. He says, I have seen you in the sanctuary, your power, your glory, your loving kindness is better than life. So my lips will praise you. I'll lift up my hand in your name. There is this overwhelming sense of 
contentment. And that's what we see in verse 5. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Take a moment right now, if you would, and close your eyes and repeat out loud with me just a few phrases. Because sometimes it's just helpful to put our voice boxes to our brains and not just think it, but say it. So close your eyes and just repeat from your heart these words. Lord, I thank you that Jesus died for my sins. Lord, I thank you that Jesus died for my sins. Lord, I praise you for the gift of eternal life. Lord, I praise you for the gift of eternal life. Amen. Once you make praise a pattern in your life, you can be in the wilderness of Judea and be just fine. David was. And his son Absalom was chasing him. It's not just that somebody was trying to usurp the throne. His son was trying to... You ever have any family conflict like that? Where a son or a brother or someone dear to you that ought to be close and intimate is instead the your enemy? That is not a happy life. And if we don't have God, how do we make it through those seasons? How did David do it? He was able to do it because even in the dry and weary land where there was no water, he was thirsting for God, and the presence of God solved his problem. And notice the progression. Verse 5 says, my soul is satisfied. Back in verse 1, it says, my soul thirsts. Verse 5 says, my soul is satisfied. And then down in verse 8, which we'll read here in a second, it says, my soul clings to you. Let's start at verse 6. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Again, the progression. Verse 1, my soul, is, my soul thirsts. Verse 5, my soul is satisfied. The New American Standard here says marrow and fatness. What in the world does that mean? It's a figure of speech. In fact, if you've got the New International Version, it says the richest of foods. It's just a metaphor of I am satisfied with the very best because of God. Begin to praise God for who he is and what his loving kindness has done for you. Your perspective begins to change. Then verse 8, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Notice that. The parallelism is beautiful. And this is how Psalms talk to us. One line informs the other. Whenever you read any Hebrew poetry, whether it's a psalm, whether it's the book of Job, whether it's uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, especially the book of Proverbs, don't just read one line, but read the two lines together. So always two lines, sometimes three. But one line will inform the other. Sometimes it's a parallelism where they're saying the same thing. One line helps the other line make sense to you. Sometimes it's a contrast, but always read them together. And verse 8 is important to remember that because it says, My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. It's both. We're clinging to God, God is upholding us. God is upholding us. When we cling to God, maybe might be another way to say it, God upholds us. He is strengthening us. Don Kistler wrote this, The person with a discontent heart 
has the attitude that everything he does for God is too much and everything that God does for him is too little. Kistler didn't write this next part, but we could also say the opposite is true. The person with the content heart has the attitude that everything God does for us is way too much and everything that we do for him is way too little. Even at night, we're told here in verse 6, when I, David says, when I remember you on my bed, even at night, he says, I meditate on you in the night watches. If you're struggling with something in life, nights are the hardest times. Because the daytime, you can stay distracted. You know, you keep the television on, you got the Christian music going, you got your favorite preacher preaching in the background, you got your phone constantly with you. There's always something to distract you from reality. But at night, it's all dark. It's just you and your thoughts and God. David says, I remember you on my bed. I meditate on you. What does he meditate on? Verse 7, you've been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. He is putting himself under the wings of God as he's running from Absalom. And we can do that. Whatever your Absalom is, put yourself under the wings of God. And in verse 8, again, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Here's the second principle. The second principle. The Lord satisfies us when we earnestly seek him. The Lord satisfies us when we earnestly seek him. It's a promise. The Lord has promised to be close to his own, but he also expects his own to draw close to us. Remember that old Seals and Crofts song? Darling, if you want me to be. They sort of sang it like the, the Bee Gees, you know. Darling, if you want me to be closer to you, get closer to Don't act like you've never heard it. <laughs> you love that song. Trouble is, that's all we remember of it. But that is amazingly biblical. If you want to draw close, in fact, the book of James says as much, draw close to God, and he will draw close to you. David's saying the same thing here. My soul clings to you, verse 8, your right hand upholds me. You want to get closer to God, get closer to him. That's the way it works. Your spiritual life is not... Is not in a bad way because God has moved. Your spiritual life, if it is in a bad way, is because you have moved and you need to draw closer to God and God will draw closer to you. It's a biblical. R.C. Sproul wrote this. He said, A fanatic is a person who, having lost sight of his goal, redoubles his effort to get there. <laughs> the fanatic runs around frantically getting nowhere. He's a basketball player without a basket a tennis player without a net, a golfer without a green. For a Christian to make progress in learning to please God, he must have a clear idea of what his goal is. Jesus said it this way, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Well, there's a final critical element in our satisfaction. Verse 9 but those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. 
They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. David trusts God for vindication. The mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. He's trusting God for vindication. And here in this verse is where we get the implication that he's running from Absalom and not King Saul, because David refers to himself in verse 11 as the king. He wasn't the king when he was running from Saul. Saul was the king. But here he says the king will rejoice in God. So we know he wrote this when he was king, and he was in the Judean wilderness running from Absalom during this time. So I wouldn't die for that. That's probably what's happening. The king will rejoice in God. And that he calls himself the king is significant because if we were to read back in 2 Samuel when Absalom was coming into Jerusalem, David referred to Absalom as the king. It's probably laced with sarcasm, but he says, hey, why don't you stay with the king, and the new king, the new king. But all throughout that chapter also, the author keeps referring to David as the king. The king said this, the king said this, not Absalom. When it refers to Absalom, it's Absalom. But when it refers to David, it's the king. David is still king, even though he's running. Here in the psalm, David says, I am still king. I believe that God is going to come through for me. He has not let me go. There is this hope and expectation, verse 9, that those who seek my life to destroy it will go to the depths of the earth. That's exactly what happened. Verse 9 also says, those who seek my life. I kind of wish the translators had been consistent here. The word for life is literally the word soul. And I know that doesn't make a lot of sense because when we don't read Hebrew, we don't realize that the word for soul doesn't just mean the immaterial part of us. It means all of us. So life is a fair translation, but we, but we miss the connection. Verse 8 says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me, but those who seek my soul to destroy it will go to the depths of the earth. There is this clear indication that my life and all of who I am is under the power and shelter of God. David was able to have that kind of assurance. I read about an area in Africa where Christianity had taken root and was really growing. And converts were very zealous about spending their time with God. There, I mean, when you are new in your relationship, the puppy love of your spiritual life, you know, it's easy to, to spend time with the Lord. It's easy. It's great. But then you grow up, you know, unlike any relationship, the relationship becomes work. It's not, uh, it's not natural or it's not just easy like it is in the puppy love stage. And so what would happen in this area in Africa is that Christians, this particular culture, they would all sort of wander off into the wilderness or into the uh, jungle, and they would have their own place in the jungle where they would have their quiet time. And so everyone sort of over time developed their own trail. And you sort of knew, that's, you know, Brother Bob's trail, that's Sister Sue's trail, etc. And therefore, you also kind of had a gauge on their spiritual life, because if weeds started growing over their trail, you're realizing, you know, they're not going there very often. And believers would gently and lovingly rebuke one another with the words, there's grass growing on your trail. <laughs> well, I read about that thinking, you know, not that we need to apply that toward one another, though wouldn't that be fun? It'd be better to apply that to ourselves and to look at our trail. You got grass on your trail? 
or are you seeking God, as David says in verse 1, earnestly, or literally early, meaning first? I don't mean first thing in the morning, though many of us do do that. I mean priority. Is God your priority? Is there grass on your trail as you are spending time with God? God gave us this book not merely to give us something to do every day, not merely as devotional content, but as the means by which we would grow closer to him, to love him, to give us insight that we would not have otherwise, and to give us the strength that we need when we, like David, are in the wilderness running from our Absaloms. We need that strength. So don't let the grass grow on your path. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Let your soul thirst for God, even in a dry and weary land. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for David's courage and the amazing maturity of his spiritual life that you gave him during this season. This is a season where he was reeling from his mistakes, his sins, and his family was suffering the fallout of his own mistakes. And yet, even in the midst of that, we see your grace poured out in his life, that you weren't done with David just because he made serious errors that he was living in the backwash of. And we've all done that. We've all been there. Maybe we're there now. But the psalm teaches us that you're not just the God of yesterday. You're not just the God of our lives when we're faithful. You are the God of our lives no matter what. And when we are in a dry and weary land, even if it is our own making, or even if some um, opportunist like Absalom is coming along to try to oust us, you're in control. We put ourselves under the shadow of your wings. In the dry and weary land where there is no water, we thirst for you. And we look forward to the day when being in your presence, Lord, everything will melt away. Give us those moments as we open your word. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your law. Give us insight into our own hearts, to your heart, to the true reality of the happy meals that we consume. Give us truth that we can cling to and courage to follow that truth uh, every day without exception. Let the grass not grow over our trail, our walk with you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.